places that are important to me, places I've lived, I've told them stories about, and I feel compelled to return to and, and know better. Um, I wanted to revisit them myself with my mom, too, to see what I have straight and, and what I had crooked, or at least to learn more about our, our family's history out west, which is mostly her family's history. So, so we did. Um, we headed first to Winnipeg. Believe it or not, we live in Thunder Bay, and my kids had not been to Winnipeg before. We hung out at the Forks with my dad's side of the family before my mom joined me. My McLeod brothers and sisters, my stepmom's family too. And then we headed up the Yellowhead to Edmonton and continued farther yet to Jasper and down the Icefields Parkway, which just about broke my heart. I mean... We know things are melting and the climate's changing, but I'm only half a century old, and I've seen those glaciers retreat, and uh, it's really devastating, but still beautiful, and I was so glad to share that beautiful place with my kids. So we spent some time in Banff, and then we went across to the Badlands. We, we visited Calgary and then went down to southern Saskatchewan to visit Cadillac and Old Man on His Back Conservation Area. And I'm going to tell you more about that part of the trip in today's show. Um, before we were done, though, we detoured up to Gimli, Manitoba, to see my cousin Bill. The Bill. Bill has been such a gift to me in this podcast. He's my mom's cousin, actually. And although he's not the only person listening to each episode, pretty much the day I uploaded it, right from the hop, Bill would be really consistent. He'd let me know how it hit him, what it made him feel and think. And he'd say a lot of nice things, which, which is amazing. So when Bill said he wants me to give him more music, and I mentioned this in our last episode um, of the last season, to not just, you know, noodle. He wants a tune he can learn to sing. Something simple but true. I listened. So, here you go, Bill. This week's tune to kick the season off. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Mowing more, growing, growing our mothers, growing the wild, growing the ways we help our relatives thrive, growing our mothers. 
is growing the wild, growing the ways we help our relatives thrive. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Growing our people, growing our land, growing the way we make our neighbors strong. Growing our people, growing our land, and growing the way we make our neighbors strong. Let's mow more growing, less mowing, more growing, less mowing, more growing, less mowing, more Growing our food, growing our energy, growing our listening ears and our community. Growing our food, our food, growing our energy, growing our listening ears and our community. Let's mowing more growing. More growing, less mowing, more growing, less mowing, and more growing, growing our knowledge. Willing to change, growing our courage as we open our hearts, growing our knowledge, willing to change, growing our courage as we open our hearts. Less mowing, oh my, more growing, less mowing, more growing, oh yes, less mowing, more growing, less, less mowing, and more growing. All right, so where'd that start, Bill? I started that song by thinking about lawns and bush. I do see the attractions of a neatly mown lawn. It opens up vista, keeps the bugs down, frames and simplifies things. And we like to simplify. We can understand and appreciate a lot of different things. I'm not getting personal here. I'm talking about we as in we as a species. But we, humans, are, are not good at multitasking. We can set a routine or a habit and do it while we focus on other things. 
but we just can't wrap our minds around the multiverse of life. There is a lot to notice. There's a lot going on all the time. All these things going on, they're interconnected, they're interdependent all around us. So when we focus on, let me give an example. We're trying to grow some food, right? We're focusing on growing this food, and it's very tempting to our love, simplicity, and straight lines minds to just clear out everything else growing there that we don't understand to be related to the growth of that food. The same thing happens when we tell a story. I think about this a lot as somebody who, you know, appreciates a good story and tries to tell them. So much happens around us and in us and to us and every minute, every day. But we don't see it all, first and foremost. We're blind to a lot of it. What we do see, we don't necessarily remember much. And then when we craft a story to tell people what we want to share about our experience, we edit even further out until we get a beautiful, perfectly crafted, if it goes well, narrative arc. It might be perfectly true. It might tap into broader truths. It might not even spell out. But a narrative is not a whole truth. The whole truth is too big to even fit in our brains, mind you, our eyes, or even our hearts. It's more than we can understand. So, more growing, less mowing. Hmm. I think a key to figuring out what the best choice is as we try to quickly adapt to this climate crisis and try to work together to make things better, to fix wrongs and do right, I think a good rule of thumb would be, and this is something Sammy said when we were talking about, about agriculture. He's like, don't think you're smarter than Mother Nature. Be humble, I guess, another way to put it. Know that there's more going on than, than we can possibly fully understand. And that's okay. Have a little faith. This, this miracle of life has been going on without us understanding it for, since well before we were part of the whole equation. It's amazing, actually. It's the only way we can rebound from crisis back to calm. We've got to let the wild wisdom have its way and, uh, and let go of our urge to simplify what cannot be done well and be made simple. Growing our mothers, growing the wild, growing the ways we help our relatives thrive. Growing our mothers, growing the wild, growing the ways we help our relatives thrive. And by relatives, of course, I mean all living things. It's not us and them. We're all one. Next week, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had. It was so great with a, a lovely man. His name is Phil McGuire. And we just met. Um, a friend connected us. He's a Métis man from Nipigon. He knows. He's very clear. Uh, he's been thinking about it. What good looks like. Which, by the way, is the theme of this season. It is what good looks like. And for Phil McGuire, what good looks like is save the mothers. Save the mothers of all our relatives. That's what it says on his t-shirt each time I've seen him so far with a beautiful picture of a fish that he had designed and he gets printed and, and he sells for the cost of making them. Save the mothers. The mother fish and the crayfish and the mother insects that are ready to spawn. The mother moose and mother martin and mother moss. 
save the mothers so the wild can rebound and renew itself and keep on feeding us and all our relations for generations to come. Because sometimes when we focus on one thing and don't look at all the other things that's connected to it, we lose a lot more than we're saving. And often we lose mothers. Save the mothers. We're going to talk about that. Which makes me think about Cadillac. So Cadillac is a Saskatchewan town um, that we went and visited. I brought my family down to see the homestead just outside the town that my mom's grandparents settled back in 1910, so 112 years ago. They left that homestead to their son at the end of the dirty 30s. So they only lived there like a little over 20 years. And by the time they left, they told him, you know, try it maybe another year. And, and if you can't pull it off, just walk away. Well, he made it and he didn't walk away. And, and my mom inherited a, a piece of that, of that homestead from her parents. So we could put a ownership hat on and, and contact the family that's living now in the house that my great grandparents built. Uh, lovely people who knew exactly where that quarter section that my my mom and her siblings own was and led us across to it to where my aunt had set up a plaque a few years back now those fields of mustard look pretty great from the road great blocks of yellow seed already set soon to be harvested but man what a difference to walk through it the ground puffed up like soft dust a wave of clicking grasshoppers pushing away from us in all directions. Each plant was maybe a couple of feet high, about half a foot from its neighbor, so there's plenty of room to walk between them. And and it was a sad, sad specimen of a plant. I mean, if I had that growing in my garden, I would be embarrassed and worried about my skill and compassion, really. It was it was it was a few little thin stalks and, and a, a few little thin seed pods, and that was it. I mean, it made Charlie Brown's Christmas tree look lush, really, which was bad enough. But all of that for this soft, empty dust that was puffing and blowing away. No wonder Canada loses inches of precious agricultural soil every year. I could see it. As soon as I climbed out of that truck and walked into that field, I could see that soil dry and empty of life just blown away. Dirt is not a given, you know. This planet didn't start off with dirt. Dirt was something that it took a miracle of life to build up over a great eons of time. It's it's a plant taking root, taking sun and carbon from the air with water and and magically turning it into food. That when it dies and rots, feeds again a mind-staggering multitude of living things that then feed the plants in turn. And slowly, slowly together, they will build up this thin coat of soil on our planet that makes life possible. Dirt is precious. And desertification turns soil, dirt, into dry, lifeless dust. And, and you know where you find a lot of that desertification? It's places where human beings tried away in doing things that turned out not to be sustainable. They took an Eden of a landscape, and they flourished in it, and they built up a culture and a way of doing things, and they pulled out of it what made it rich and did not give it back enough or manage it well enough that it could be sustained until, in the end, so many ruins of, of one's flourishing communities 
are in the middle of deserts that were made by those communities and their way of managing the earth. So that was another bit of heartbreak, that field outside of Cadillac. And certainly it made all those fields we were driving by look different once I'd walked on one. So then we went a few kilometers west to another homestead, settled about the same time as my family took up their homestead contract in, in Cadillac. Only this family, the, the Butella family, did not grow much grain. They did uh, break enough prairie to, to meet their homestead contract with the government, but they ranched most of their land, and they did not break that prairie. They left it as ancient perennial prairie. Right up until 1995, when Peter and Sharon Butala gifted the ranch and its many thousands of acres to the Nature Conservancy of Canada, who, in 2003, reintroduced Plains Bison to it. So Sharon Butala wrote a book about this, and it came to my mind when my daughter Ella died in 2005. It was about how and why they made that gift and love that land. I was thinking of my homesteading settler family in that area and um, and of intergenerational wealth and its loss when I decided to make a gift to Old Man on His Back in her memory when she died and I've been giving to them ever since. Less mowing More growing Less mowing more growing, growing our mothers, growing the wild, growing the way we help our relatives thrive. Growing our mothers, growing the wild, growing the ways we help our relatives thrive. Driving up to Old Man on his back ranch, you can see the edges of that land clearly as you approach. It's such a contrast to these bright, straight strips of, of yellow canola and mustard and huge, sharply edged fields. The ranch has these darker, more mottled lands. They, they don't catch the eye as quick. They certainly don't look as striking from a distance. But then we stepped out of the truck and we walked onto that ancient perennial prairie. The ground was covered. There was no puffing dust, not on your life. The wind was just howling by my head. But down at ground level, there were so many different plants. There were lichens and moss. There were flowers and there were like little cacti. There was evidence of so many small and larger creatures from, you know, big buffalo footprints you know, mouse holes and, and tracks and trails. And, and you know what moss does? It, it builds a little ecosystem, like a little microclimate, right down close to the earth. And you could see that in action as that wind howled and tugged at my hair. Down by my hands when I put them on the ground, I could see these tiny leaves, thin, thin leaves, that weren't even trembling because of the way that those ancient plants hold on to the earth and build it up with the help of their grazing partners. You know, buffalo, caribou, the rabbits, and, and, and all the birds of the prairies. And they work together, right? What they take in and, and mix up with all the mind-boggling biodiversity in their guts 
in order for them to extract nutrients. They then give away what they don't need, and it's been transformed into something nutritional and, and rich for other living things. And, and together, this soil and this ecosystem is so rich and growing ever richer and building upon one another's relationships with one another. It's, it's the opposite of controlled. It is not a straight, simple narrative. It is really hard to notice it all and wrap your head around just how much is going on. It doesn't look like much from a distance or if you're rushing by. But with a bit of stillness and time, it is so inspiring and so beautiful and so generous to future generations. Even though the neighboring ranchers, they tease the scientists who monitor and manage these acres for how few head of buffalo are ranged on all this land. And they consider that less profitable than the more intensely grazed acres given to the nearby cows. But, but all I saw was plenty and health and wealth and promise for a better future. Those, those first buffalo have gone on to seed buffalo back on prairies for many communities and projects, and I think that is nothing but good. Growing our mother buffalo, growing our mother prairie, and all our relations who live there in greater connection and greater diversity than I can even wrap my little head around. It is humbling, and it is inspiring. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Growing our people, growing our land. Growing the way we make our neighborhood strong. Growing our people. Growing our land. Growing the way we make our neighborhoods strong. So we're driving across the prairies and Ben and Sam are making jokes because it is mile after mile of canola seeds. Sometimes a little cluster of workers on giant machines farming. Sometimes a windmill farm between the fields. Sometimes a little town around a grain elevator. Sometimes the grain elevator had the name of a farm on it instead of the town because the farms have gotten so big. So I told the boys, looking out these windows, I see the canola, yes. But this is what else I see. This land has been prairies since the last glaciers retreated north thousands of years ago, and it has been rich land, supporting many nations that I wish I knew more about, but what I can tell you is all those different nations raise their families and live their lives sustainably for thousands of years without leaving any ruins behind. And then, not long ago, very recently, Europeans came here, our ancestors mostly. And why did they come here? Mostly because they were desperate. Europe had a few people who ran the place and lots of insecurity. From younger sons of the wealthy to the many, many, many poor workers trying to make it go. So when they first came to the prairies, Europeans saw plenty 
they saw wealth. And at first, they traded with the people of the land to take from here what Europe no longer had. I have to say, trading for them was not an equal deal. If a good trade was one where you took more than you gave. But then they wanted more. So first, they launched a campaign, this is in the 1800s, to kill all the bison and starve the people who relied on them to get them out of the way for their own agendas, which was diabolical and successful. It was terrible, but very few buffalo were left, and the land and the people of the land were devastated. So then these Europeans, trying to pull out of North America what they needed in Europe and what they wanted as wealthy people to build their wealth and power, they first contracted out this land to ranchers right at the beginning of the 1900s. And, and the ranchers would get this big contract to bring a bunch of cows up here to graze where the buffaloes were no longer. And those big ranchers did really well for about 10 years, which is a pretty short business plan. And then one really cold winter, almost all the cattle died. They were all killed by the cold. A crazy storm. And pretty much the very next year, the government canceled most of those ranching leases to the consternation of those that thought they could still stick it out and pull it together and make it continue on. Instead, they then measured up the prairies into half-mile square sections, and they put a call out that anybody who wanted could get that land from them for free if they signed a homesteading contract and they met the requirements of that contract, which were breaking up a perennial prairie so you can plant seeds of European annual crops to be sold overseas as part of the whole colonial international trade system, help with roads, fencing, you know, a barn, all that sort of stuff, do it on our schedule, and we will give you title to this land. So in 1910, that's what brought my grandpa's parents and their young family here. My great-grandpa was a blacksmith, uh, so he didn't yet have land, but he had some money, and uh, this was an opportunity for him that worked out for him. It's not easy breaking the soil, and it is not easy getting through your first winter with just what you can build in a fall. But they pulled that off, and once um, you've broken the prairie, all of those ancient roots going down meters and meters as they all rotted and released carbon into the atmosphere, that was a rich release of nutrients too. So the first crops were great. And my family certainly got quite wealthy pretty quickly for about a decade. Again, 10 years. That's not a very long business plan. And then the dirty 30s hit. And all that soil that had been getting thinner and thinner as the ancient roots beneath them composted away, blew away pretty much. The fences that had been built, they, they became catching zones uh, so that you could kind of scrape some topsoil back on your land if you were lucky. But a lot of the homesteaders were not lucky and, um, and they had to give up those contracts or even the farms if they'd won the contract and, and roll away to other places. There was enormous homelessness and displacement and death across North America through the 1930s. And my family also left that farm. By then, my grandpa and his brothers had been set up with a gift from their parents to help them get a start in life. And they left one son and, and said, you know, if you can pull it off, this place is yours. We don't expect you to pull it off, though. And those gifts to the next generation, 
those all continue to benefit my extended family. We have a certain amount of wealth, certainly not the level of wealth of, of the leaders of Europe who set everybody up to profit them more than they themselves profited, you know, profit the wealthy more than the workers profited. But, you know, people own their homes, they have savings, they can help each other out when things go awry. And that is an, an enormous gift that was given to us through this history. But who is the winner here? I mean, we have to acknowledge the incredible theft of sustainability to all the people whose nations were impoverished by this decision to, to kill the buffalo. And there was more levels of unfair dealings and uh, trickery. That means that most First Nation people, by the end of that same era, had so much less to add resilience to their, to their families. They didn't necessarily own their homes. Um, they didn't necessarily get to live on the land their families had always lived on. I don't even know all the story. I just know that I have wealth that was not fairly won in some ways. But on the other hand, the culture of the European colonial system that was sending workers here and there and setting pretty much everybody up so that there's a winner and a loser in most deals. It's not a fair trade. It's... Um, manipulative and, and sometimes exploitive. And certainly it's not a given that you're going to get what you think you're in for. That's also what I hear in that history of this land. So when my great-grandpa and fellow farmers, for instance, started organizing grain cooperatives in the 1920s, uh, those wealthy few that were trying to make this whole system work so it mostly benefited them really pushed back. And they didn't just push back by saying, hey, I want to make money and you're trying to make it harder for me. They were sneaky, right? They, they bent ears, they influenced conversations, and they tried to convince all of us that it was we all had the same interests as they did. And I hear echoes there, right? I hear echoes there in another time of a great economic shift being necessary and those who stand to lose what they backed, really wanting to control the conversation about that. Anyway, that is what I see as we drove through the prairies this summer, a long history of misled expertise, like, you know, the, the buffaloes, the ranchers, the homesteaders, the, the requirements to homestead to break that prairie and to plant for export. All of this is misled so-called expertise. Workers and people manipulated like pawns in a chess game being played by overconfident, underinformed egoists trying to win rather than solve. There are heroes, you know, who, who manage hard things, absolutely. But the heroes are not the ones who set all the wheels in motion there. You know, we were all cogs in that in many ways. Less mowing, more growing, growing our people, growing our land, growing the way we make our neighborhoods strong, growing our people, growing our land, growing the way we make our neighborhoods strong. I found a treasure at the library last week. It's called The Fragile Earth. It's a compilation of feature articles about climate change that were published in The New Yorker from, from back in the late 80s all the way up to, like, 2020. And, and that's about as long as I've been reading The New Yorker. So in that compilation, I rediscovered articles I had 
kind of forgotten or I couldn't remember where I'd read that information, uh, but I, I think have really influenced me. And, and that's just such a gift, you know, oh, right, you know, there's connecting the dots. So in, in 2004, for example, David Owen wrote an article about how much less of a carbon footprint and how much healthier a lifestyle a person living in Manhattan has to someone living in a small rural home like a homestead in Cadillac, Saskatchewan, or like my home. Little house, a lot of property all around it. Got to drive to the grocery store. In Manhattan, you'll have a smaller home. There'll be less commuting. More efficient utilities when buildings are cheek by jowl, you know. More neighborhood connections when you're walking together, when you're shopping together. That's really interesting to me, and, and I think a lot about that, right? The future requires that we snug back in together again and stop the sprawl. And in another article in there from 2013, Eric Kainberg, he was talking about the massive research tallying up the powerful positive impact of neighborhood on our health, our resilience and crisis, our opportunities to connect and innovate together and solve local issues with local solutions that are tailored to fit. So his article starts with two Chicago neighborhoods with two very different mortality rates during the 1995 heat wave. 1995. We're going back that far because it was studied and, and the findings have been tested and tested and tested and continue to come back reinforcing that neighborhood matters. So these two neighborhoods were both equally poor. They were right next to each other in Chicago. They were equally and similarly ethnically diverse. But in Englewood, during this heat wave, 33 people died for every 100,000. And in Oldburn, Gresham, which was right next door, only three people died per 100,000. Eleven times more people died in the neighborhood next door. Why? Well, Englewood... Englewood was a gutted neighborhood. It had empty stores, empty lots, very few local businesses, nowhere to get your hair cut nearby, nowhere to buy some milk, no congregations keeping the churches going. Auburn Gresham, on the other hand, was packed. Poor, but packed. People and everything they really need, all cheek by jowl, tucked in together. People knew one another. So they were able to quickly gather and get organized, figure out on their own what would work, who to check in on, making sure that no one fell through the cracks. Englewood, on the other hand, was nothing but cracks. So Thunder Bay, Thunder Bay has some great community, but it also has some great big cracks, lots of cracks that we could fill. I can imagine great ways to make our neighborhoods strong. And I did make a few things happen with that in mind myself this past summer since I last podcasted. For instance, we threw a block party up here in my officially urban but actually rural community. Ben drew a picture of people chatting. Sammy drew the words block party out of bright blocks. And I put out an invitation featuring their art. Ben went west. Sam went east, up, up and down our road, putting invitations in mailboxes. And a couple other days, you know, I walked around uh, trying to chat with people face to face. My neighbor, Diane, coming with me, encouraged them to come and they did. They did. It was amazing how much I worried about it and how easy it was once it was happening and how easy it is imagined to do it again and how much of a difference it makes 
to just kind of fill in the holes. You know, I, I know who lives places, their names, what age their kids are. I, I'm not guessing. Um, it's huge. It's huge. And it was fun and super easy. Um, and, and the other thing that we did that was kind of similar my church hasn't had Sunday school for a couple of years to the point where there hasn't been a kid coming in the door the right age for Sunday school for most of those two years. So we, we put an effort together. We put our heads together. We reached out. We put out a poster. We put on a little survey on Facebook. We repainted the Sunday school room and, and thought a little bit about how to freshen it up and make sure that we were prepared for kids. And the kids came. We have a Sunday school class again this year that Sammy and I are teaching together. And it feels really good because a church... I mean, a church should feel like a cornerstone of a community. It should feel like a place, you know, you're known and you're welcome and you can use that space in, in respectful ways and, and you can know that you will be respected and welcome there. And sometimes when there's nobody there to open the doors or wash the steps, a church can just kind of fade away from a community. And I would hate for that to happen with our little church and our little community. So I'm so glad that we have these, these new young faces to find faith and community and, and that welcome again. And, and that I got to be part of that. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more growing. Less mowing, more Growing less, mowing more, growing, growing our food, growing our energy, growing our listening ears and community, growing our food, growing our energy, growing our listening ears and community. I was so glad to get to visit with my cousins Betty and Allison and Eric and their family when we went to Calgary. But the conversation among all the ones of the catching up that I was most struck by was with Allison. Because Allison uh, has been listening to the podcast and she said that it helped inspire her family, her and her husband, to put up solar panels on their home in Calgary and go all solar. And it was super easy. This was so great to hear and so inspiring that actually when I got home, I wrote to her and asked her to write it all down for me so I get it straight. So here's what she said. She says, the whole process for them took three months from the first day they sat down on the computer and said, well, how do we go about this, to actually having a final installation generating power. So to get started, they went online. In minutes, they had an estimate of how much power they could generate with rooftop solar panels. All they had to do was plug in their address and the size of their roofs at the City of Calgary Residential Solar Calculator. It gives the optimal number of panels, the solar energy generation potential, the estimated cost, the financing options like monthly savings, the payback period. It really made it easy to feel like this was doable. There was a bit of a delay then, because so many people <laughs> were, were getting the pre-inspection energy assessment that would allow you to qualify for a $5,000 Greener Homes grant from the federal government, that there's a bit of backlog on that. So they had to wait for that to happen. When the grant was announced, um, there were only four approved inspection companies in Alberta, but now there are over 500 across Canada. So they're a little bit ahead of the wave, but now they say, don't worry about that. And then once their evaluation was done, they had to get a city permit, which took a couple weeks. 
and then NMAX installed the meter within a day. Panel installation took two days. And the entire cost for them to replace the energy used in entirety by their home was just under $15,000. $10,000, really, if you subtract the $5,000 grant. That included, they kind of doing top of the line, um, a sensei consumption monitoring system so that they could track their real-time energy consumption and compare it to their energy generation through an app. If the cost of energy does not go up at all, which is unlikely, but if it doesn't, they will have made back in savings by not having to pay for their energy what it costs them to set up that system in seven to eight years. It would have been 11 without the grant. There was also an interest-free loan program, federal, that helps them pay for that. And now they're generating enough energy on an annual basis to equal the energy they consume in a year. And when they generate more, they get paid for that extra energy to the grid. They're also planning to join a solar club loyalty program that's run provincially that allows them to sell back power to the grid at a higher rate and to switch to a lower rate in months when they use more than they generate. They're super pumped about the whole process, and I got super pumped too. So that's going to be one of our episodes coming up. When I first moved in with Arno here, uh, the year that, that Ben was born in 2008, there would be people just like randomly coming out to our door to recommend that we set up solar or wind or geothermal. Like alternate power was all the rage. And yet I hadn't looked into it since then. It, it was expensive then. And we were juggling a lot of things. So we didn't do it then. So I'm like, okay, I've got to find out what the, the options are now. And I know the price is less. What's the process? What's the benefits? And and we, we started. But I have to tell you right off the hop, our journey um, was not nearly as straightforward or as easy already as Allison's, which I think is in and of itself interesting. So growing more of our own food too. That I will be digging into again from another angle in the coming season. I mean, Europeans, like I said, they were sent here and set up as workers to profit an international and imbalanced colonial trade system. I don't think that's what good looks like. And the theme of this season is what does good look like? So what does good look like when it comes to that basic necessity and primal pleasure, food? We're going to go there. Less mowing, more growing, growing knowledge, willing to change, growing our courage as we open our hearts, growing our knowledge, willing to change. Growing our courage as we open our hearts. I have to say, when I get a, a little information, it, it's kind of like manure tea on my imagination. I start imagining away what might good look like. What could we do differently that would work better, inspired by that new information? But I do have to remember that imagination is fed by information and should not be mistaken for it. And that the full capacity we have to make a difference is wider and deeper and more diverse than my puny little head, my tiny little imagine, can ever grasp. If every one of us does as little something different, what a difference we can make. Particularly considering my fondness for simplifying things, for seeking a clear, edited storyline, when I take a step back and imagine everyone as their own path, 
interconnected in so many ways and so powerful in what we can each do. I'm really hopeful and, and inspired. I have been thinking a lot about courage. Courage is not a lack of fear, as I know you know. It, it, it's very often courage is doing something despite your fear. And change is scary stuff. Changing the topic. Changing the tone. Changing the expectations. Powerful, scary stuff. But once you dare to do something, once you do it once, it gets easier. And when you know that you're proposing change that is needed, you're daring to imagine something better and welcome. You're being brave because it matters. Well, it feels so much better than just looking away and trying not to let yourself worry. I think the best antidote to worry is action, but it does take courage, and courage is hard. In the short run, I tell my kids this all the time, courage is hard in the short run, but it's so much easier in the long run than denial, despair, and delay. So this podcast is my action. And if you like what I'm doing, if you'd be happy to buy me a coffee in appreciation for my making the time and spending some money so you can listen to this podcast, please consider buying me that coffee by contributing a little bit, about that amount, to my podcast through my webpage, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. You can subscribe, too, through whatever service med you hear. Take a moment to give it a rave review online or, or to a friend. All of that would be great. My name is Heather McLeod. Something Different This Way Comes has no sponsors except my listeners, my time and pocketbook. It represents no one's opinion but my own. And if you want to know more about what I'm referencing, I list and link them all on the website, if I remember. Please point out if I miss one. And I want to thank you again for listening. Join me for the second episode of the season, Save the Mothers, next Tuesday, October 11th. Something different, something different, something different, this way comes something, something different, something